Bailey made her best friend enter into a pact. And the pact was that if one of them were to die, they're gonna, they would make up a sign that they would communicate to the other one so the other one knew that they still existed. I mean, what 13-year-old thinks of this shit? I don't know, but ba Bailey did. So Bailey's sign to her friend was that she was going to take a blue magic marker and she was going to put it in an unusual place. And uh, and Bailey's friend that said after the funeral, she walked back into her bedroom and neatly placed on her computer keyboard was a blue magic marker. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science-y skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions keep an open mind and wonder what the fuck just happened. Hi everyone. Today I have Bob Ginsburg from Forever Family Foundation on and that's really exciting to me because he has been one of my rocks and mentors along with his wife Fran who I've talked about quite a bit on this podcast and so it's kind of meaningful to have him on. So, Bob, can you introduce yourself? Well, I, you just gave me a good introduction. But uh, as you said, I'm, I'm Bob Ginsburg. I co-founded Forever Family Foundation with my wife, Fran, as you mentioned, uh, back in 2003. And uh, we're an organization that has grown over the years. We now have 13,000 members in 76 countries. And our uh, programs keep expanding and, and uh, we keep exploring. And it just shows what a thirst there is for this type of, of knowledge. And what we've found over the years, as you well know, is that evidence of an afterlife can be very helpful in one's grief. To some people, 
they don't need any science. People like you and me do, but a lot of people don't. But I think it's important to form some sort of a basis for belief, you know, before you could, you know, jump into it. Because we're not about blind faith, although for some that works, but we're evidence-based faith. And Bob and I are similar in that both of us thought this was all complete bullshit, would never have done this if we did not have a life-shattering loss. And I think we both have taken a long time to even think this was possible. So what did you think before your loss of Bailey about afterlife? And then what was the first bit of evidence that made you start to think this could be possible? You know, as as I think back, I just never really contemplated life after that too much. I mean, you know, I was a, a, a left brain logical thinker and, and I just thought that a belief in an afterlife was a nice thought, you know, but so was believing in Santa Claus, you know, so, but I didn't know how that could possibly be because we were our brains and when our brains are no more, we're no more. And that's the end of, of, of discussion. I've told the story a couple of times that way back, you know, before the foundation, I was playing golf with a friend of mine and we were in a golf cart together and we were waiting to tee off the, at the next Oh, and my friend Kenny turned to me, and Kenny had recently lost his wife to cancer um, only a few months before, and he said, Bob, I have to tell you something. And I said, what? And he said, well, I went to see a medium, and I wasn't really quite sure what a medium was, but alarm bells were going off in my head because he said, well, you know, she told me all of these unbelievable facts about, you know, my my wife that she couldn't possibly have known. And he probably saw that look that I was giving him, the look that people give me now. And he just looked at me and he said, well, you don't believe any of this, do you? And I gave him some lame answer like, well, you know, who knows, you know, Kenny, you never know. And I went home and I remember clearly saying to Fran, I just saw Kenny and I'm so worried about him. He's going to see some gypsy fortune teller. She's going to take all his money. He's overwhelmed by his grief. And that's what I thought, you know, and then look at my life today. You know, so I have a, a lot of patience and respect for people who don't believe that our consciousness can survive our physical death because I was one of those people. And as you mentioned, I would say it took me about seven or eight years before I really came to that knowing stage. So in, in that respect, you can call me a hypocrite because we started the foundation. I'm giving talks about evidence of an afterlife and I didn't fully buy in myself. So, you know, it, and for me, I mean, to your question about what changed me, there wasn't anything that like hit me over the head. It was a gradual process. You know, things kept happening. I was reading hundreds of books Fran was having many, many experiences that, that couldn't be explained, and I just kept dismissing them, dismissing them, dismissing them to coincidence. And then, you know, just one day it just dawned on me that I can't, I can't continue to dismiss, you know, the evidence. It's overwhelming, uh, and, it, and it kind of turned the corner. You know, luckily I had some, you know, I did have some personal experiences that helped me along the way. But uh, I, I wish I was like a lot of people where I just bought into it right away. But I, that wasn't me. And I know it's not you. <laughs> it's certainly not me. I wish it was. I'm on six years. And while I still think 
it's very probable there's an afterlife. I'm still not completely convinced. So I don't know. Let's see if seven years is my turning point like you. Um, so you said Fran had some amazing experiences and then you had some amazing personal experiences too. And we had really amazing experience with a dream. Would you want to share one of Fran's amazing early experiences and then one of yours? Well, you know, I mean, we have to go back to the beginning of how this all started because, you know, my, my son and my daughter were in a car accident and, and the morning of the accident, a friend woke up in bed like it was about three in the morning and she was trembling and shaking. And I said, well, what's the matter? And she just, she couldn't talk. And, and I just I asked her again, what's the matter? And she just was staring straight ahead. And finally she said something horrible is going to happen today. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, I can't tell you exactly, but our, our lives are going to be changed forever today. Um, so I normally would not take that seriously because I didn't so believe in anything like visions or precognition and things of that nature. But uh, we were married for decades, you know, even at that point. And there were many times that Fran had these kind of visions and they all played out exactly the way that she said. They happened to be all good things, but logic told me if she was right then, she could be right now. And I, to make a long story short, I, I, I watched over our three kids the best that I could um, throughout the day. And I let my guard down at night and, and my son, we had two cars and we were in a restaurant, my son and my daughter were involved in this accident and, and my daughter didn't survive her injuries and my son was was um, seriously injured. And about three months later, when it became clear that my son was going to survive his injuries, I hadn't thought about it for three months because I was in shock. But then it dawned on me, I said, wait a second, like, how did Fran know? And then I became consumed or I don't even if consumed was the right word. I became obsessed with finding out how she knew, you know. So now logic told me that there were only two explanations. One, some people are able to catch a glimpse of future events. Or two, I was open to the possibility that somebody was sending her a message and that the possibilities there were, was that message coming from somebody that was still alive or somebody that's no longer embodied. Um, so I started meeting with scientists and researchers and across the country that studied consciousness because I needed to find out if, if, if there was a possibility that my daughter still existed in some form. Um, so that is really how I went from, you know, my life doing a complete about face, you know, it was really, you know, when we started doing this work, we started the foundation. Admittedly, it wasn't for me. To, I, I had no desire to help people at that point. I just was looking for my own survival, a way that I could, you know, deal with this. Of course, that changed over the years. But initially, it was my own way of trying to work things out. And then we learned about things that, you know, that you have written about, you know, I mean, not only mediumship, but near-death experiences and, and, and end-of-life experiences, deathbed visions and reincarnation and after-death communications and things of that nature. And the more I learned um, about consciousness, the more convinced I got, I, you know, I became. And 
like me, you do not have abilities of your own, but you had two dreams. I had, over the course of several years, you know, 74 dream visitations from my daughter. Um, and when I say dream visitations, you know, we, I'm talking about a visitation dream is different from a regular dream, call them regular dreams, because they're they're kind of a rehashing from your subconscious of events and things you're worried about, and they don't make much sense, and they're all discombobulated and not in any order, and you don't you forget them as soon as you wake up. And in a, vi a dream visitation, very tactile, you could talk to your loved one, you know, I'd smell them, um, you might, you know, hug them or kiss them and so forth. So I, because Fran told me to, I, I, I journaled all of them, you know, so that gave me a, a lot of hope. Uh, I had um, several experiences that defied logic. I went to a, a well-known medium. Again, this is before the, I believed in anything and before the foundation. I went because Fran asked me to go. And, you know, we're sitting there and, and the medium gave me three extremely obscure pieces of information that nobody but Fran could have known because they had, they had just happened. Um, and then I remember it was in Manhattan. I was driving home with Fran that night and I was just trying to, my mind was racing because I'm trying to figure out the trick. You know, I said, how to be a trick. And I couldn't figure out the trick. Um, so, I mean, I, I was open, you know, that probably was an inst an instance that helped to open me up to the possibilities. Bailey visited all you guys at the same time in the hotel? Yeah, that was, you know, strange. So after my, my son was going, after he was released from the hospital, he was going to a, an outpatient clinic that treated people that had brain injuries. And it got to the point where he was, he was getting much better and he was able to travel. And I was worried about my middle daughter who was at Carnegie Mellon University. So we decided to fly up to Pittsburgh. So it was me and Fran and my son, John, and his girlfriend at the time. We checked into a hotel and Corey, my daughter, decided that she'll check into the hotel too and we'll all be together for the weekend. And I went to sleep that night and I had Bailey came to me as if she was right in front of me, you know, and I was so, I mean, excited is not the word. I was so overwhelmed that I couldn't stop my heart from from like bursting from my chest. And Fran was getting putting on clothes because she was going to take me to the hospital because she thought I was having a heart attack. And eventually, she calmed me down, you know, and, and I and I fell back asleep. And then I had an, another you know a visit. Bailey wasn't stopping, you know, and I had three of these visitations in one night. The interesting part is in the morning. I found out that Bailey also came to Fran, and then we met uh, my kids for breakfast, and I found out that Corey um, had a visit from Bailey at the same time that Fran and I were having the visits, and my son's girlfriend also had a visit uh, from Bailey. So, you know, when I stepped back from that, I said, wait a second, four people, we happened to be in the same geographical location in the same hotel at the same time had these visitations. So that told me something about the nature of consciousness where you, you know, consciousness can be 
everywhere at the same time, you know, past, present, and future. It splits. Um, so that was another profound moment that, did I walk away convinced? No, but it was another tool, you know, to put in my bag and, and um, to build upon. Yeah, like what Leslie Kane says, it's like a bunch of little sticks. And when you put them all together, it becomes this thick, I, I forget exactly how she described it. When you put them all together, it becomes like a thick bog or whatever. And but each one on its own is not going to do it because you can keep explaining. The, the little sticks build a raft, you know, that you can cross. You know, I'm, uh, early on, I remember we had a conference and uh, Bruce Grayson, who's a near-death experience researcher and a medical doctor, summed up his talk by saying, look, it's easy to explain away one particular discipline of research. Like you can you could explain away mediums, you could explain away near-death experiences, you could explain away deathbed visions and reincarnation. But, you know, when you step back and you and you take all of the evidence as a whole, the thing that makes the most sense is that our consciousness survives a physical death. I and mean, that always stuck with me because I always encourage people to just to absorb and keep learning and eventually you'll come to your own conclusion. What always amazed me, too, is it sounds like Bailey was amazing at signs. And there's a sort of Morse code that I remember you told me really early on when I was basically, I would harass Fran and Bob and the mediums. I'm surprised I didn't get thrown out of Forever Family events, but I was following around with multiple questions saying, well, what makes you actually think this could be true? And all different variations of asking that repeatedly. And one of the stories you told me was this amazing story related to what sounds like a Morse code. Yeah. Fran got a, a new car shortly after Bailey's passing. And, and she told me that she was driving and her, the radio was off because she didn't like to listen to the radio while she was driving. And then this sound that she could only describe as Morse code was coming out of her, you know, her radio, even though the radio was off. And she said, and she even told me what it sounded like. It was like that, da 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 So, you know, she turned the, the car radio on and, and that can, it continued. And over the course of the next several weeks, we started to hear that same code coming out of all sorts of things on our house. So it came out of our alarm system. It came out of a microwave. Microwaves don't make sounds. You know, it came out of TVs that were turned off, you know, I mean, you know, that, that it came out of alarm clocks. Well, this is, I can't explain it, but it's, you know, it's weird. And then I was driving my own car that I had been driving for three years and um, I had the radio on and son of a bitch, I hear that, 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 on my car. So I immediately shut the radio off and it continues. Well, we, um, we were working with a, you know, a scientist who was coming to New York to do a lecture for us. And he had been the, while he was there, I told him about this and he had, he was the only person besides Fran that, that knew about this. So he's in the middle of, of his lecture in this big lecture hall with 500 people. And I'm sitting somewhere near the front in the audience and in the middle of his lecture out of the PA system in the, lecture hall comes so he stops his talk and he's he's looking in the audience to find me and he finds me and i just hold up my hands and i 
I shrugged my shoulders like I, I can't explain it. So we go home and then he said, look, we have to do an experiment because he was working with mediums, um, research mediums that were, uh, he was doing experiments with. So he said he told Fran to light a candle and to ask Bailey in spirit to go to one of the mediums who we didn't know. Her name was Janet. Uh, all we knew was that her name was Janet and she lived in St. Louis. So he said, ask, ask Bailey to let Janet know if she's if, if Bailey is sending this Morse code. So uh, Fran, as she always does, follows directions, lights a candle, says, Bailey, I need you to do something for me and I need you to be very specific. I need you to go to this medium. Her name is Janet. She lives in St. Louis and let her know if you're sending me Morse code. And forget about it. And then the next day I, I, I was working, I went into my office and turned on my email. And the first email was from, you know, the scientist. And it was a forward of, of an email that he had gotten just then from this medium, Janet. And the email said, I have no idea what this is. I've never experienced anything like it before. But somebody is sending Morse code. And when I read that, I was in my office and I think I let out like a scream because I did, that was insane. You know, I could not imagine how that could happen. Now, you know, you might say, okay, is that evidence of, of an afterlife? You know, perhaps, maybe not. But whatever it was, it was extraordinary because if you can rule out fraud, and in this case, I think we could because the medium was not in cahoots, you know, with the scientists, they were conducting research. Um, that was an extraordinary thing that really gave me a great deal of hope because I couldn't explain it. I mean, it's at least showing consciousness is behaving non-locally in some way. And if it can behave non-locally, that's a huge step in favor of survival. You're right. And on those lines, I mean, you made me think of the other thing that probably was a really big turning point. This was back in 2005, and I had been reading extensively, and I was reading books, some of them going back 100 years old. And I read a book that was written, I think, in the 1920s about remote viewing. And for those who are not familiar with remote viewing, there are some people that could, um, for lack of a better way of describing it, they, can, they send their mind or their consciousness to a distant location. And then they're able to see that location and then even draw accurate diagrams of, of what they see. And it was used in the Stargate program by the CIA, which is now declassified and, and you can read about it. But in any event, so I devised this experiment and I, and I told any, everybody, all the members of the foundation that wanted to participate that every night between 9 and 9.15 p.m., I was going to draw a picture. And I asked anybody, even if they thought they had no intuitive ability at all, if they wanted to take part every night at that same appointed time, draw a picture. And at the end of the five nights, mail those drawings into me, you know, physically. And I purposely wouldn't think of what I was going to draw until like 10 seconds before, because I wanted to try to eliminate the possibility that they were reading my mind, which which you could relate to, was you would have done the same thing. So then on the last day, on Friday, I said, you know what? I'm going to screw with everybody. I'm not going to draw a picture. I'm going to draw a geometric shape. And I decided to draw a, a dot with concentric circles around the dot. 
So now I'm done with the experiment and the envelopes start to come in and I'm all excited and I'm opening them up and I'm look, looking at the series of drawings and I was pretty disappointed. You know, there was, was nothing substantial. I could stretch some, you know, but it really was, to me, was a, it was a complete failure. And the very last envelope I opened up was from a woman in Bend, Oregon, and she only particip participated four of the, ni the nights, but in two of the photos, including the one with the geometric shape, she got exactly, I mean, I'm talking about identical to what I drew. drew. And in the other two, I had read in my research that sometimes the remote viewers, they get all the components, but they don't quite put it together in the same way. So she had all the components in the other two. So the interesting thing about it is I drew those geometric shapes on Friday, but she drew them on Wednesday. So I had to say to myself, okay, who was remote viewing whom, you know, right? Because, you know, we knew from, we know in remote viewing, there's no time and space and distance and 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 there's things sometimes remote viewers would see things from the past and some things they sometimes they would see things in the future. So the reason that that was important to me was that here I was, I was in New York at the time. So I was sitting there at my desk with my brain in my skull. She's sitting 3000 miles away with her brain in her skull. If we believe in material science, this is not possible, right? I mean, your brain is consciousness and it doesn't extend beyond your body. But here was proof that it did. So, you know, that to me was very important because if you don't believe that the mind can act independently of the brain, then you can't believe in an afterlife. It's a prerequisite, right? So to me, that was a turning point. I know you can relate to something like that. Maybe some people can't, but, you know, that was, that was a very important moment. I actually took a remote viewing class with the Rhine and with Paul Smith. He's going to be a guest on here shortly. And I had similar experience. I didn't think I was going to get anything. And then the, I was used as an example in one of the classes. And I was like, what, what the fuck? Like, I, how does this happen? People are always using you as an example, Liz. You notice that? I don't know if it's always positive. <laughs> Rubber gloves, I guess. Bob and Forever family use me as a regular example of skepticism because one of the mediums, our mediums we've mentioned before, Janet Mayer, to book a reading with her, she wants to use a paper check. She feels the energy from the paper, so she asks you to fill out and send a paper sheet. And... I didn't want to get fingerprints. Also, I know I mentioned a paper check. I got an anonymous money order. So people don't think I fucked up there. And I wore rubber gloves. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they have like CIA connections at this point. This is before I even met anyone at Forever Family or started volunteering. So I wear rubber gloves. And to me, this seems normal. And I casually mention it in a conversation once. And <laughs> to this day, no one has let me live it down. No, I certainly haven't, you know, but that's, you know, that's taking it to an extreme. But, you know, when like when we're evaluating mediums, I mean, we do it under controlled conditions, but that's taking the control to a whole new level, Liz, right? <laughs> Probably. I mean, I sometimes wondered about facial recognition technology. So a lot of my readings early on, I would do on the phone. 
And I wondered a little bit about voice recognition technology. That was the one thing I couldn't figure out how to eliminate, but I eliminated everything else. So I was just joking at our recent retreat that I'm going to start using a voice disguiser. So that's what the mediums were like. So if we get a message from some random name and it's like, hello, yes, I've had a couple of readings before. They're like, well, we'll pretty much figure out who this is. Yeah, well, I, you mentioned a voice disguiser and I... I shouldn't even bring this up, but I'll tell you a story that's totally unrelated if you want. <laughs> I know the story. You know what? I will say. We'll save it for another show. <laughs> that's a different show. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Okay. I will comment on that because this is an important message. I felt, and Bob can back this up, we laugh so hard every Forever Family Retreat. And I had about a year, maybe not quite a year, where I thought it was so wrong to laugh or so wrong to have fun. I was like, my dad's dead. I don't have a right to laugh or have fun. And I tend to be a pretty humorous person. So there is nothing wrong with laughing, with having fun. Also, don't deny if you feel like shit either. You're allowed to feel like shit. Don't listen to the, it's been this long, you need to feel better. Yeah, but no, no, you raise an interesting point and as it relates to grief, because, you know, a lot of people, and I certainly did, the first time that I laughed, uh, you know, after my, my daughter died was, was, I felt tremendous guilt. Like, how dare, you know, that I, that, you know, so, and these grief retreats, um, as you mentioned, um, there are a lot of people there that are in a horrible grief and, and great despair, and and you have to you know, we always try to interject, you know, some humor because you you have to lighten, lighten it up a bit, you know. I mean, I'm not talking about doing a comedy routine, but but you have to uh, mix in some, some lightness with the darkness. And that, I think people appreciate that. So here's a concern that I hear from a lot of people. And I know I had a few really bad readings early on. I got I will say lucky. The mediums will say it was all planned. My first reading, she was not even certified anywhere, happened to be amazing. And I was just like, the same as you. What is the trick? What am I missing? What's going on? Because even if she had used facial recognition technology, she knew stuff that was not Googleable. So what about all the people who comment that they've gone to a lot of mediums or a couple medium readings and the information's just very general and they leave so dejected. Uh, what are your thoughts about the majority of medium? Well, I mean, I mean, that's why I wrote the book that I wrote, you know, the medium explosion, but you know, I state and I'll stand by it that, you know, 85 to 90% of the, of the mediums that are practicing today can't do what they claim, you know? So I'm not saying that they're all frauds, you know, but, they have um, some intuitive ability, but so do you and I, and so do most people, all in varying degrees. But they don't have the ability to communicate with a discarnate entity. So, yeah, you know, people, you know, they they tend to think in terms of like a medium is a medium. There's no difference. Like a doctor is a doctor, or a lawyer is a lawyer. But even among doctors and lawyers, there's a tremendous disparity in their abilities and their ethics and so forth. So that's one of the problems with, with mediumship because, and I worry about that all the time, because if you have somebody that's in grief and they're, they're not sure if there's an afterlife, 
they're sitting on the fence, you know, waiting to see where they're going to wind up. Uh, and then they go to a medium and they have a horrible reading and they walk away saying, this is just a crock of shit, you know, and, and this is, um, there is no afterlife and I'm deluding myself and it makes them feel even worse if that's possible, you know, than they did before. That's why we take mediumship very, very seriously. I always counsel mediums that it's it's something not to take um, in a lighthearted way. You're dealing with people. You're not a grief therapist, but you're dealing with people that are in various stages of, of, of depression and, you know, and so forth. So it, it's a very precarious position that they're put in. It also puts a lot of pressure on the medium. You know, because they know, and a lot of times they're they're the lifeline for that person that's sitting there. Now, there are some mediums, and I I just encountered one or two today that sent in inquiries about certification and so forth, and they still believe that giving the person a message, telling the the person, the sitter, the person getting the reading, that that their person in spirit loves them and is okay and didn't feel any pain. Like their job is done and that, you know, and that makes the person feel better and, and it very well might. But how could you accept that unless you really believe that the medium is communicating with your loved one? How, do you, how are you supposed to really believe the message? You know, so first, you know, what I want to hear from the medium is first, I present the sitter with all the evidence that they could verify then I could give them the message from their loved one and, and they can take that because they know that we're in contact. And that's something that a lot of mediums just don't get. You know, they don't think that the evidence is that important, I mean, which is essentially what a medium is. A medium is a person that, that reportedly can provide evidence from people that are no longer embodied. So it, it's an issue. Um, and there are no Unlike, think about anybody else that, that's dealing in the mental health profession, you know, there are ethical guidelines, there are proficiency guidelines, there's, there are regulatory bodies, you know, there's continuing education. There's nothing. I mean, you can go out tomorrow and, you know, Liz the medium and start charging $500 an hour and start your business, you know, and it, it's an issue. As Fran would always say, anyone can just go put up a shingle and next thing you know, they're calling themselves a fucking medium. Right, right. That's that's true, and we see a lot of it, you know. Inspired by David Justice, who died after a nearly two-year battle with glioblastoma, JET, Joyful Experience Team, was founded by his son Oliver Justice and his best friends, River Attard, Leo Gerstein, Jack Gorenstein, and Felix Ward. JET seeks to create joyful experiences for families struggling with brain cancer, a chance to enhance their lives with experiences that are rich in love and will be treasured for all time. We believe, like David did, that life should not be measured in time, but in joyful moments. JET will allow families coping with this painful diagnosis to go to special events and be treated like VIPs. Go to makingheadway.org forward slash jet for a complete list of programs and activities. 
Yeah, I've noticed that too. I have taken quite a few mediumship classes to study just scientifically, watch the process, knowing I don't have abilities. And, you know, I've, I've met people just with the best of hearts, but you can see they're not evidential and they, they operate from almost a religious type of belief-based approach to this. And then they give those type of readings and they often get clients that feel the same. And then the reading isn't evidential. I mean, just one example with me, I was giving somebody a reading in the class taught by Joe Scheel, one of our mediums, doing the assignment saying, say what pops into your head and things were popping into my head, but they were all very clearly logical. Like I'm sitting in front of someone, the woman was probably in her 60s. I assume she lost a grandmother. I assume her grandmother baked. So all these things were popping in my head and they were right, but they were very clearly like sit in front of someone, guess who they lost and guess some things about them. And the woman was like, oh, see, you're good. You definitely should try to start getting clients. I was like, I absolutely should not. I know. I I, I totally uh, understand what you're saying because the same, I had exactly the same experience. I went with, with Fran to a retreat. I forget this one, whether, whether it was in... Bahamas or was in Europe, it might have been in England, but in, in any event, they did a similar exercise where they wanted you to just pair off with somebody and say, just, you know, keep talking. And in the first one that I did, I did exactly what you did. I, I sized up, you know, my, my left brain was sizing up their approximate age and their ethnicity from the way that they talked and where they were from. And I was just giving them bullshit that was pretty accurate, but it was bullshit, you know, and, and I, I felt horrible afterwards, you know, like, because that person really was, was believing, you know, what I'm saying. And it, I just, it was a learning experience because I realized how a lot of unqualified or fraudulent mediums can, you know, can operate. I mean, we also know today that especially after COVID hit, that mediums stopped doing readings in person. They were doing it on, on Zoom and other platforms. I mean, you mentioned, you know, Joe Scheel, he, he caught a medium that was doing a reading on Zoom and the medium had a split screen on her laptop. And on one side was the sitter and on the other side of the screen was the woman's Facebook page. And, and the medium was just spitting back everything that she was reading on the person's, you know, Facebook page and and the sitter thought that she was the greatest medium in the world, but she was a total fraud. So that's something that could not have happened a hundred years ago in the Victorian era when the you know there was no Google and there was no internet, but now there's so much information. Um, so it's it's a genuine concern, you know. So we always tell people you know give the medium the least bit of information that you can, you know, before you get a reading. That's why I either just give my first name or just give a completely fake name because you just don't know. And in my yeah. book, I disguise a few things like I wanted in terms of honoring him to give my dad's real name, but evidence is too important. So I gave my dad a fake name. I Everything's true, but I disguised a few signs. I had to disguise a few things for my mom because she's like, I do not want a single person to know that X, Y, Z. I'm like, okay, okay. But yeah, it's from what I understand, just a tiny percent, the majority are good hearted and believe what they're doing. And a tiny percent 
can a tiny percent, or I don't know if a tiny percent, but a percent are actually intentionally fraud. And then a percent are genuine and able to do it highly skilled and accurate. That's my impression. Yeah. When when I wrote the book, I, it didn't make me very popular in the mediumship community, but I didn't do it as an expose, like, you know, to, to, to expose mediums. It was quite the opposite. I wanted to show that the, the 10% that can truly do this and are very, very gifted are extraordinary and they could change people's lives. What we need to do is identify more of them, you know, instead of, you know, and that's why we, we have to evaluate 10 mediums to find one that, that we can certify because that same percentage holds up. Right. And it really is the white crow theory. All you need is one white crow to disprove the theory that all crows are black. So if one can do it, we found more than one, that means consciousness survives. And that's really all that matters at the end of the day. That's true. You know, that's why sometimes when people sit in, you know, group readings and they, and they get very disappointed if the medium, you know, doesn't come to them, which happens often, you know, in groups. I mean, I used to think of it the other way, because if I'm sitting next to somebody and the medium is giving them very, very specific and evidential information, obscure information that the sitter can verify, I thought, well, if that person's loved one still exists, that means that mine does too, you know? So there's some value in hearing other people, you know, get the evidential readings. I had experience with that early on. I had signed up for one of Laura Lynn's groups, one of our mediums, and I surprisingly fucked up because I don't really fuck up and I paid with my credit card or my PayPal. And I was like, oh shit. That was something that just ate away at me. <laughs> As you, you know, can imagine me early on. And this was before I started volunteering with you guys. I'd found her through Winbridge, which is run by Dr. Julie Baishel and Mark Bacuzzi. And I went and took her first workshop. Then I went back to another and I went with a friend of mine. I made him pay cash and he got read and I didn't. And it was very accurate. And I was like, hmm, okay. She actually could Google me and didn't have any of his information. Like I would be an easy, much easier Google than, you know, I questioned facial recognition technology, but I was like, but how would that have all worked? And, and then I was thinking fingerprints on the cash, but then how many people touch cash? I mean, these are all the things going through my mind, but she knew non-Googleable stuff. And I would have just been a much easier target with my real information. And I assume most people there gave their real information. He was one of the only ones I made him do it all fake name, everything. And he got reading and i was like there's something to that but yeah i like when other people get read too i would score all early on i would score myself against everyone else's readings and i'm like these are highly accurate and none of this would apply to me or very little would so that was very helpful to me yeah i mean i did something similar you know in all the years that we've been doing this um, and working with some extraordinary mediums Neither, neither Fran nor I ever got a reading from one of our certified mediums. Not because we knew that they were great, but we couldn't trust the information because they knew too much about our story. So even if I got a great reading, I would question it. You know, did they just know it? So, I mean, you mentioned Wesley Kane before, and when, when Wesley was researching the book Surviving Death, um, she went to Ireland and she got a reading, you know, from a medium. And when she came back, you know, she called me and she asked if she 
could bring the transcripts of the reading over to the house and would I score them because she knew that that's what I did. And when I scored, the, there were but three or four readings that, that she she gave me and the medium was unbelievably accurate. It had like a 92% accuracy rating. So I knew she was the real deal. And then after Fran passed, you know, Wesley called me up and she said, would you like to get a, a reading with this medium Sandra O'Hara, who now herself is in spirit. And I said, you know what? Let me think about that. And then I called her. I said, you know, she, yeah, I'd like to get a reading on one condition. The only information I'm going to give her is my name is Bob. And God knows how many Bobs there are in this world. And you can't look that up. And, and I asked Leslie if she would pay for the reading using her own PayPal account. And I, of course, reimbursed her for that. And I got the reading. And it was a, it was a very strong, eventual reading. And you know me, as I'm getting the reading, I'm, I'm, I'm scoring it at the same time. And, you know, Bailey came through and Fran came through and it was a great reading. And the reason it was great for me is that I, I trusted the information, you know, she couldn't have identified me. So that was, I think it's important, you know, I mean, the reading is that much stronger if you can eliminate I mean, everything in your own mind that questions it. I'll just share an interesting story about Sandra O'Hara as well. I had a reading with her very early on. I heard about her through Lloyd Arbach and, you know, fake everything. And she was so accurate. I mean, she got memories from my dad. She described my cat who passed. And one thing I scored is wrong. She said, who is Joe? And I said, I don't know any Joes. And she said, well, Joe's someone, if he's not a friend of yours now, he's someone who's going to be very important. And I was like, yeah, okay, wrong. So now, as most of you listening, Joe Peretta was one of my first guests. He's a psychic medium through Forever Family. He's become one of my best friends. I mean, we talk all the time. And so that it's just, I, I've actually gone back and checked a lot of my old readings and stuff I scored wrong about the future. A lot has come true. And that's been amazing for me. Then you get into the question of, you know, is it is it psychic information or is it mediumistic information? You know, because she's she knew that, Joe was going to come into your life, you know, was there a discarnate entity that was telling her that? And that's what makes it so difficult to score these things, because it's hard to, to, to parse the difference between the two. I know Forever Family certifies mediums for accuracy and eliminating fraud. To what extent can you talk about this process? I know there's a lot of secrecy behind it. No, it's, it's really not that much secrecy, except the actual, you know, scoring. I mean, it's a it's a process that, you know, we never solicit any medium, but if a medium sends us an inquiry and the details are on the website for familyfoundation.org and they express interest, we send them a series of questions, nothing in depth, just to see, get a general idea of where they're at and if there are any red flags and if it looks good, we invite them to complete a, an ex quite extensive application that goes into great detail. When that comes back, it gets reviewed by a committee. And if the, the, the committee says that, yeah, we'd like to move on with this evaluating this medium, an interview is arranged. And then the interview is reviewed. And if that looks good, they're invited to participate in, in a session. And a session used to take place back in the day in 2005. We used to do it in a hotel in a big ballroom. And we used to have a 
bring in dividers and set up different stations and would used to evaluate like eight or 10 mediums at once. Now we do it via Zoom because it's, it's a hell of a lot easier. And each medium does a reading for five different sitters. So they do a series of five readings. The sitters are all trained by us because so they know about mediumship. They know about specific information versus general bullshit. They know about how to score the reading and so forth. Um, and then we have five different scoring methods that we, we use based upon the composite of all five readings. And if they meet the target in each one of the five categories, then they gain certification. So it's um, it's not an easy thing. And it's very, even for good mediums, it can be kind of distressing to go through that process because mediums have never been put through in a position where they're being evaluated in a somewhat clinical atmosphere. Just about two months ago, I was doing a, a session with the medium, and during the, the session, the medium started to have a nervous breakdown. I mean, she, she, you know, had to, like, stop the reading, and I had to, even though I'm not a, a psychologist, I had to <laughs> try to use all my skills to calm her down and reassure her and so forth and get her back on track. So I understand, and for that reason, if a medium doesn't gain certification, we invite them if they want to to do it again because now they know what to expect. And you know, I didn't want that to affect you know the process. Of course, there has to be some ability. I mean, they have to show some ability before you know we want to you know invite them back. But m most do. And now that I think about it, I mean, the data is pretty much stays true. If they failed once, they usually fail a second or a third time, but um, we want to at least give them a chance. Yeah, I could see maybe a very evidential medium, as you said, could get very nervous and maybe they just, or maybe they're having an off day or maybe, you know, they're young and they train further and come back in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, and that happens. They do get more training. And, you know, sometimes people, they just apply too early. You know, if you, they're doing it for six months, you know, I mean, we're, evaluating mediums sometimes that have been doing it for 30 years. You know, I mean, it's, it's like anything else. You you not only learn different ways of receiving information, but you learn ways to communicate the information that you're receiving. You know, you could put five mediums together and they could all be getting the same information from a person in spirit, but they'll all interpret that differently. And when they try to put it into words, it comes out differently. So that's that's a skill within a skill, you know, to be able to take the ineffable, something that can't be described, and put it into words. It's uh, it's not easy. And you gave an example when you train sitters of specific information versus general. Can you give an example for our listeners of what would be an example of general and what would be an example of specific? You're with the medium and you see me and you can gauge approximately how old I am. And you say, Bob, I, you know, I, I have your great grandmother here. Do you have a great grandmother in spirit? And, you know, what I'm thinking is, well, you know, fuck yeah, she'd be 130 years old. So um, yeah, you're right. And I would have to mark that as a hit because it's true. It's a true statement. You know, you can't get more general, but it's still true. But that if you say to me, Bob, I have your, your great grandmother, Rebecca here, um, and and she was um, 
actually uh, an attorney when there were no women attorneys and she had this unbelievable knack, you know, for, or hobby. And you describe that or a food that she cooked. Well, that should be scored a lot more heavily than the first statement, because now if you, first of all, knowing her name was Rebecca, the odds against chance are pretty remote that you could guess that. And when you combine that with five other obscure pieces of information, the odds become astronomical that you'd be able to guess all that. So that's a piece of specific information is weighted more heavily in a scoring as, as it should be. Now, one thing I think that's fascinating about Forever Family Foundation, and I think our listeners might be interested, tell us about the auxiliary board. Well, you know, so we have a, um, several boards. We have a, a scientific advisory board, which is made up of scientists and medical doctors and researchers. And then we have an academic advisory board, which is made up of, of you know, professors and PhDs. And we have a medium advisory board, which is mainly made up of some mediums that have participated in research over the years. And then the board you mentioned, the auxiliary board, which is probably, we're probably the only organization for-profit or not-for-profit that has such a board because it's made up of dead people you know, people um, that are on the other side. We have not kept up with it in recent years, but for, probably because Fran's not here kicking me in the ass to do it, but we used to gather our medium advisory board and ask, ask them to get in touch with our, our members on the auxiliary board with specific direction of how the foundation should act, you know, things that we should do and changes which we should make. And we used to get some pretty info, interesting information that we would base our planning on, you know, from, from our board. So, um, you know, why shouldn't they remain part of our lives as, you know, the same as the, the scientists and the, and the doctors? You have a very interesting story. Was it Arthur Hastings? Like you ask people if they'd like to be on the auxiliary board after they pass, and then you wait for a sign. Was that with Arthur Hastings with all the papers in Fran's office? Yeah, you know, sometimes you know more than me, Liz, you know, when that stuff, I mean, I, yes, we did, that it, That was the process, you know, somebody, if somebody was nominated to be on auxiliary board, we wouldn't just put them on there. They would have to, they being the person in spirit, they would have to let us know in some way, give us a communication or a sign. And in Arthur Hastings' case, maybe you, I don't remember the, what his sign was. You do, evidently. Oh, I can tell it. Fran told me this story. It was amazing. So I believe Fran or you, I don't know who actually asked, burned a candle and said, would you like to join the auxiliary board? Fran goes down to the office the next morning and she sees papers scattered everywhere. And she's like, ah, oh, the fucking cat's knocking everything over. So she starts picking up the papers. And she sees the first one's from a paper by Arthur Hastings. The next one's a paper by Arthur Hastings. And she picks them all up. And they're only papers by Arthur Hastings. <laughs> and it's not like they were separated okay. out in a special pile. They were just mixed in with every other. So she was like, OK, I guess we'll take that as a sign. Yes, that, that's a ex perfect example. I mean, that was a sign, and then he got voted onto the board. You know, uh, now that you mention him, you know, he was a researcher in the field, and he was doing um, like a two-year project using a psychomantium. He built a, a psychomantium in the university that he taught in. And actually, Fran and I went out 
to visit him and pick his brain. And we, we looked at the psychomantium and then we eventually built one. What is a psychomantium? The psychomantium is, is based upon uh, what the, the ancient Greeks used to have. They used to go into these um, caves. It was based on sensory deprivation. So they go into these caves that were, you know, there was some very, very dim light. Um, and there were the, these reflecting pools. And they would sit there and just contemplate and see um, images form, you know, out of the, in the reflecting pool. And, and the, the psychomantium is based on the same principle. You just, you have like a cubicle with dark cloth on the end. We built ours out of PVC pipe. And on, in the front of the psychomantium, there was a mirror. You could think of it as a mirror or a window. And then there's a, a nice relaxing reclining chair. It's about four feet in front of the the glass, the mirror. And all you would do is um, we had like a, a night light, you know, that you would use that gives us very dim light. So the light was enough if you if you put your hand in front of you, you could see the outline of the hand, but you couldn't see the hand itself. And people would sit in this room, you might call it a meditation chamber because it's similar, gaze into the window about 45 minutes and have all of these experiences. Some would report seeing deceased loved ones, some would just see these anomalous lights and different forms that, that, that came in. So he did a quite an extensive uh, study. Of course, Raymond Moody was the first one, you know, that worked with psychomantheums and did that. So it's one of the tools, you know, when, when you're exploring, you'll try anything, right? Yeah, so. within reason. <laughs> yeah, almost anything. Yeah, pretty much. I know we've talked about how probably so many more people have experiences than share it. And you had an experience with your doctor early on that was, he shared. What happened with your doctor? I didn't go to a doctor, you know, for about two years after, you know, Bailey died and I had some ailments, so I figured, all right, let me go to the doctor and check it out. The doctor happened to be a friend of, of mine. So I, I went and I sat there in his waiting room and the family pulled me in and we go into the room. He shuts the door and he, he says, but I haven't seen you in two years. You know, how are you? Okay. What have you been doing? I said, you really want to know? He says, yeah. I said, I've been studying survival of consciousness. So he just looked at me and we started talking about something else. He didn't ask me why I was there medically, but we're just bullshitting. And then a couple of minutes go by and he says, can I ask you something? I said, what? He said, what's survival of consciousness? So I start explaining to him the stuff we're talking about now, uh, you know, that our mind is different than, than our, our bodies and continues on. And while we're talking, his nurse walked into the room and it just turned out that his nurse had recently lost uh, her, her baby to... Um, to SIDS, you know, um, sudden infant death syndrome. And she was obviously distraught, but she was very interested in our conversation. So she's sitting there and we're all talking. There's like a riot in his waiting room because there's like 40 people and we're sitting there for like 45 minutes. So finally she leaves. And then uh, my friend, Frank, the doctor, gets a very serious look on his face. And he said, can I tell you something? I said, yeah. He said, he said, my father died seven years ago. I said, yeah, sorry. And then he said, well, after he, the, the morning that he died, I had a lot of 
patients that were in serious condition in the hospital. So I had to call my answering service and had to, had to get my messages. So I called and, and, and the, the receptionist said, oh, doctor, uh, your father called. And he said, my father died this morning. And she said, oh, so, I'm so sorry, doctor. I must have gotten the message wrong. He must have said your father-in-law. He said, my father-in-law has been dead for 15 years. And then he said, what time did the message come in? So at 9.15, his father had died, you know, at 9 a.m. He said, read me back the message. And the message was, you know, Frank, it's me. I'm okay. Um, and um, this stuck with him. And over these seven years, he never told a soul. He never told his wife. He never told his children. He certainly wasn't going to tell a friend or a, even worse, a medical colleague. But he heard the stuff that I was talking about, and he knew I wasn't going to judge him. So he felt safe in telling me. And I guarantee you, fast forward 20 years, he's never told another soul. When I thought about that, you know, and Fran and I were talking, I said, you know, how sad is this that he feels that he has to hold this in, this extraordinary experience, not tell anybody. And that's how it's one of the turning points points when we knew that we had to start trying to get people to open up and share their experiences because once they start doing that and it gets out in the mainstream, you remove the stigma and the judgment that goes along with it. Uh, and you can, you know, you can change the way we think about life and death. Since I've quote, quote, like come out about all of this, because I was pretty embarrassed and secret about in the beginning, so many people have said things to me like, okay, well, I don't really believe this and I'm not sure what I think, but, and then they share just a crazy story or even like, Someone will email me a person, a stranger, and they're just like, you know, found your podcast. People might think I'm crazy, but, and then they'll tell a story. And I just think all of us have these experiences. You know, most of us are not like mediums who have constant experiences, but most of us will have an experience now and then that we just cannot explain. Yeah. And it's funny how they have to preface it by saying, oh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but, right? Right. I'm like, did you see what I do? <laughs> like, I'm probably not going to think you're crazy. Well, that's one of, one, of, one of the great things about these grief retreats that we hold is that everybody understands how everybody else feels. And they, and, and they, they know that nobody's going to judge them. So they're free and open to talk about these things. Bob, it's going on an hour. How much do you have a little more time? Yeah, for you, Liz, sure. <laughs> Be careful. You know me. I can lock people into conversations on Afterlife for hours. I don't sleep, so you're not scaring me. <laughs> so one thing I know, and I know we've talked about this, and it's something that just, I still at times worry that this could be the catch. Why? If this evidence is so amazing, and I'm absolutely blown away by everything I've learned, I don't understand why everyone at CERN studying the Large Hadron Collider, all the big scientists aren't running just amazed by this. They laugh it off and they dismiss it for the most part, not everybody. But why is this not front page news in the scientific and medical communities? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the same thing. You know, when it, once I started reading everything, I thought, well, this is extraordinary. I mean, you have things with odds against chance in the trillions to one, and yet the evidence is not accepted because it challenges belief systems and, and, and education and training. If this is right, 
everything that they've been taught is wrong, and, and, it, and it's really hard. You know what's really interesting? There have been survey, surveys that have been taken among scientists, material science, you know, people that believe in Newtonian physics and, you know, hardcore core left-brain thinkers. And in the survey, they'll ask them if they believe in, in you know, in God, you know, if they have faith in a, in a higher being. And the same people that dismiss everything else because it can't be replicated in a laboratory, the majority of them express the belief that they do believe in God, you know, but they've never seen any evidence, but yet, but yet that faith um, is enough for them, but not when it comes to to other things. Make, make, that made no sense to me when I when I read that. You know, I don't know how you can dismiss it. I mean, there have been, you know, a famous quote from a scientist that said, "I I wouldn't believe this stuff even if it was true," you know, which is a pretty incredible thing for a scientist to say. <laughs> you know, so it it's really I, I think it's changing. I think. As the years go by, I think more and more and people are open to it. You'll know, you've noticed that a lot of today's physicists are starting to sound like spiritualists when they give their talks. You know, with, with we're talking about the divine spark, and you know, they may not. I mean, they may refer to it as we're all connected, remain connected from the Big Bang, but you know, a divine spark is kind of the same concept. So you know, I think that. Science and spirituality are not that far apart, and, and, and it keep getting closer and closer. So who knows what the future will bring? But yeah, I can relate to what you say because I always wonder about the same thing. What is it going to take? And that's why, you know, things that come out in the mainstream, like the Netflix series. I mean, look, the Netflix series wasn't, you know, not all of it, you know, was great, but it, it accomplished what I hoped it would: is that it opened up a lot of minds to the possibilities, you know, once you open up somebody's mind, they start exploring and learning. And that's a good thing. And we need, we need more of that. Most people had no idea who Jim Tucker was, for example, Dr. Jim Tucker was for seeing that. Now his name, Dr. Bruce Grayson, these very serious researchers that I had no idea existed until I started really digging. They're not part of the normal conversation. You know, Dr. Jim Tucker researches cases of kids with past life memories, Anything I'd heard before about past lives was tied into what I would have considered nonsense and talked about in a very sort of, for lack of a better word, woo-based way. That's how it's talked about in the mainstream. And then you find out about Jim Tucker and Ian, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who also is, he's passed away, but he also studied cases of kids with past life memories. And, you know, people just don't know about these people. Yeah, and you know, even more important possibly than the actual scientific studies or just the abundance of anecdotal evidence. You know, scientists don't—they dismiss anecdotal evidence because it's to them it's just stories. But when you have millions upon millions upon millions of people that talk about things that are all, all have common features, you know, in, in their stories, you have to start to take it seriously. Everybody can't be making this shit up. You know, it keeps happening and happening and happening and will continue to happen. So anecdotal evidence is a form of evidence. You know, it's on the it's on the lowest rung in the scientific community, but it's perhaps the most most important. 
And there's just a consistency through it. That's what I noticed. Research has a consistency. I mean, you made me think of something else when I talk about, you know, anecdotal evidence that might have been another changing moment for me in my progression is that when you, I'm sure I've told you this story, but after we moved to our house in our last house in New York, my daughter Bailey was very, very upset, you know, and she would constantly want to visit her old room in our old house because she didn't want to move and she loved that house and she loved her room. And every month she'd go to Fran and she'd say, you take me, drive me back to the old house. I have to see my room. Fran would say, I can't do that. It's not appropriate. I can't knock on the door and just say, okay, you know, can we go up so my daughter can see your room? And, you know, Bailey much like Fran, would never give up. And she just kept on and on. And everything. So after Bailey passed about a, a month or two later, I guess, Fran's cousin, first cousin, knew the people that bought our home. And they were together at some wedding or affair. And the person that bought our home went up to Fran's cousin and said, can I talk to you for a minute? And she said, yes. And then she said, uh, you know, my daughter, the, the woman who bought the house, who happened to have the same room as Bailey, she was a, a young teen, came down in the, evening, in the evening and was very excited and kind of distraught because she said that she saw the image of, we shouldn't say an image, she said she saw a young girl walk across her room. And her mother explained that her daughter never, ever had any said anything similar, never had a bad dream, nothing. And she, the mother reassured her, and, and then she went back to bed, and that was that. In the morning, they're all sitting, um, having breakfast at a table together, and Newsday, which is the paper in Long Island, was sitting on the, on the, uh, on the table, and on the front page of the paper was the story of uh, the accident that my, my children were in. And uh, as it turned out, the girl saw the, the young girl walk across the room about 15 minutes after Bailey passed. So when I stepped back from that, my skeptic self, I said, wait a second, that, what would be the first place once she's freed of the body that Bailey would visit? She asked for it like a hundred times. She went back to her room. And the fact that she saw, you know, the girl saw that right after, you know, she passed, that was pretty significant to me. And it takes a lot, you know, but that kind of, you know, that was one of the things that turned the corner for me. Yeah. And then Bailey, she did an amazing sign with a blue marker and she was already interested in signs, which to me is so interesting. I mean, I didn't discover this until much later, but her best friend, uh, told Fran after the funeral that when Bailey was 15 when she passed, but when they were both 13 years old, Bailey made her best friend enter into a pact. And the pact was that if one of them were to die, they're gonna, they would make up a sign that they would communicate to the other one so the other one knew that they still existed. I mean, what 13-year-old thinks of this shit? I don't know, but ba Bailey did. So Bailey's sign to her friend was that she was going to take a blue magic marker and she was going to put it in an unusual place. And uh, and Bailey's friend that said after the funeral, she walked back into her bedroom and neatly placed on her computer keyboard was a blue magic marker. And she told Fran that she didn't own a blue magic marker and she hadn't used one 
you know, she doesn't remember, you know, it had been years. So, of course, when I heard the story, um, I mean, you know, Fran was moved and amazed. I dismissed it, you know, of course, but that was probably the first sign, you know, um, and then, you know, later I learned that just because you don't have a body anymore, you still have a consciousness and you can still do psychokinesis, mind affecting matter. And that's how that kind of stuff happens, you know. Yeah, I mean, and we, we also uncovered writings. She wrote a poem called The Wonder Awaits, which is all about when her time comes and she passes, how she's going to let the world know, you know, that she still exists. So in that respect, I mean, how could we not do the work that we do, you know, after finding that poem, right? It's almost like, Everything was planned, which I guess is the question. How much is free will? How much is pre-planned? But when I hear this, it makes me think this was what all of you came here for. There are people, even especially among children, who have some sort of an inner knowledge that their life is not going to be long. Now, I can't tell you why. I mean, maybe they're catching glimpses of the future you know, like his friend did in that vision, or maybe it's part of a greater plan, you know, where they came back for this, for a purpose and their purpose was done. But I remember that with, with Bailey, um, we were on a college tour with her sister because her sister was two years older and we figured we'll knock off, you know, two things at the same time since Bailey will be going to college two years later. So she went on the college tour with us and in the middle of the tour, I couldn't find Bailey, and I, I looked across the lawn, and I saw her. she had left the group, and she was sitting on a bench, and there were tears, like, just streaming down her face. And I sat down next to her, and I said, Bailey, so what's up? And, you know, why are you crying? And she looked at me really serious, and she said, Dad, she said, there is so much that I need to do with my life. What if I don't get a chance to do it, do that? You know, I, did, I said what most parents would say, what are you talking about? You're 13 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. Of course, you're going to get to fulfill your dreams and all. But she knew, you know, when I reflect back on it now, you know, she knew. I don't know how, but she, I think she knew. I know some people feel so guilty, especially after they lose a child or a young, you know, a sibling who's young or their spouse when they're young. And it's just they feel like, well, if I did this, maybe it wouldn't have happened. Maybe that can give some reassurance that some things are just pre-planned. Maybe. I have my own theories on that, but we don't have enough time to go into that. But <laughs> I have a new book that's coming out in a couple of weeks, and I get into some of that stuff. If people are interested, they can go to foreverfamilyfoundation.org. I write a personal blog on beyondthefivesenses.com. And the foundation, we have a radio show every Thursday. We've been since 2005, and all the shows are archived on our website. We have four grief retreats a year and um, webinars and so forth. So people have resources, you know, when they're in grief, you know, and, and uh, we encourage people to, to read and to learn as much as they can about what happens after death. And Bob's book, current book, The Medium Explosion, I thought it was excellent, really gave so much insight into mediumship and a lot of the concerns and questions and history of Forever Family. And what what is your new book called? It's called My Life Here and There. It's an autobiography. You will probably know half of my, well, not even half, but you'll, you'll know some of the experiences that are in there. 
Um, and there's a lot of humor and there's a lot of sadness, but in a twist to the story, which I won't spoil for you, a good part of the, of the book is devoted to what life is like in the afterlife. Um, so I won't tell you more about that, but because um, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> I'll put in the show notes where you can follow Forever Family and Bob and follow our Forever Family social media, please. They were the number one organization and Fran and Bob, the number one people who got me through those early days. I honestly don't know how to do it without you guys. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. You were always like a uh, another uh, daughter friend took a, you were her project, you know, should give you a lot of <laughs> tough love. Yeah. Cause she, she knew you had potential. <laughs> I know. Oh, I still, I think about her all the time. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. So Erica asks, do you ever wish you were a medium? Are you ever going to try to be one? Um, okay. So in the beginnings, when I first started studying this, yes, I wished I could be a medium, but not because I was really passionate about doing that for my career. I thought very wrongly that psychic mediums never grieved. So if I could be a psychic medium, I would never feel grief. I never really thought at that point, though, that I could become one. I thought it was just something that you're innately born with. I have since learned that you can train. And I think some people, if they train really hard, can become mediums. I, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you'd have to break down each individual case. But overall, I do think you have to be born with a certain level of skill set. And I don't think I would ever have that skill set. And it's not really something that I especially want to do for my career, nor do I think I'd be one of the best ones. And I think if you're doing it, you really need to be amazing. You are basically offering as close to proof as we can get that consciousness survives bodily death to deeply grieving people. And yeah, I, I don't think despite the fact that I've had a few weird experiences, which you can read about in my book, I don't think I have actual abilities. Yes, I would love to be one in the sense that I think I would just have so much fun, like making myself a science experiment, like getting evidence and being like, holy fuck, wait, that's real and having the whole experiences. But, and I would probably want to participate in the scientific research, but I wouldn't want to do it as my career. It's just, it's not where my personal drive lies. I would, I think if I could pick one of the like, what the fuck type of evidence stuff I write about, my first choice would be to be able to have out of body experiences and just go and explore that way. Or I would love to have an NDE near death experience, but like without all the bad components, like having to hurt myself really badly in an accident or get really sick. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. 
and feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to WTFJustHappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. Approximately 185,000 murder cases went unsolved from 1980 to 2019. On average, 66% of homicides are solved each year. So what about the other 34%? Alarmingly, the number of murder cases that went unsolved by police hit a new high in 2020, resulting in only 50% of cases being solved, leaving far too many families with no answers, no resolution, no closure. That's why we investigate and report on unsolved cases, to spread the word in hopes of helping families who are searching for answers. We don't sleep, we're just actively looking for her. These girls were alive, they were living, breathing people, they weren't a picture in the media. There was a, a body found in a truck recently. None of us know anything about that body, who, who was it, what happened. What could have happened? Who could have been involved? There's no answer. And, and it's just horrible. A true crime series investigating mysterious unsolved cases. Real people, real stories, real crimes. Tune into Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We are at Speaking of Crime on Instagram and Facebook, and at Crime Speaking on Twitter.
that if people are interested, they can go to foreverfamilyfoundation.org. I write a personal blog on beyondthefivesenses.com. And the foundation, uh, we have a radio show every Thursday We've been, since 2005, and all the shows are archived on our website. We have four grief retreats a year and um, webinars and so forth. So people have resources, you know, when they're in grief, you know, and, and uh, we encourage people to, to read and to learn as much as they can about what happens after death. And Bob's book, current book, The Medium Explosion, I thought it was excellent, really gave so much insight into mediumship and a lot of the concerns and questions and history of Forever Family. And what what is your new book called? It's called My Life Here and There. It's an autobiography. You will probably know half of my, well, not even half, but you'll, you'll know some of the experiences that are in there. Um, and there's a lot of humor and there's a lot of sadness, but in a twist to the story, which I won't spoil for you, a good part of the, of the book is devoted to what life is like in the afterlife. Um, so I won't tell you more about that, but because um, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> I'll put in the show notes where you can follow Forever Family and Bob and follow our Forever Family social media, please. They were the number one organization and Fran and Bob, the number one people who got me through those early days. I honestly don't know how to do it without you guys. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. You were always like a, uh, another uh, daughter friend took a, you were her project, you know, she'd give you a lot of <laughs> tough love. Yeah. Cause she, she knew you had potential. <laughs> I know. Oh, I still, I think about her all the time. It's- get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to WTFJustHappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them, trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, You don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.